Shalom, and welcome back to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director from Tel Aviv. This week, we have a special guest, and by special, our prestigious policy director, Dr. Michael Koplow. Michael, how's it going? It's going well, Eli, and I feel so honored that I'm the last podcast guest of 2018. You are. You are. That's unless there is an emergency podcast before the year's end. But, um, right. or, or, unless, or unless you just decide to, to undermine me and do one anyway. I would never, I would never do such a thing. <laughs> but um, since this is most likely the last uh, podcast of 2018, this is going to be our 2019 predictions podcast. Um, so Michael, you also wrote in your column about some predictions for 2019. So maybe we'll just go through them quickly. And then I have a list of questions slash predictions and that you haven't seen and you really haven't seen them. Um, so, <laughs> so, so let's get into it. Um, that's fine. If in, in, in revenge, if I don't, if I don't like the uh, surprise questions, can we go back and review your predictions from last year? Did you do this last year on the podcast? Let's keep uh, my predictions confidential. <laughs> um, so you wrote, uh, about a, a new Palestinian direction, the Palestinian public slowly distancing itself from a two-state solution, increasingly uh, supporting Hamas. Maybe let's just touch on that. Uh, what do you think will happen on the, the Palestinian street in the next year? So I think the Palestinians have been moving in this direction for some time, and some of it is related to steps that the U.S. has taken this year. Uh, everything from the embassy to the cessation of American aid to the West Bank and Gaza to uh, President Trump's general rhetoric toward the Palestinians. Some of it is in response to a complete lack of Israeli concessions in all sorts of areas toward the Palestinians and in the West Bank in general. And some of it is frustration with the direction that the Palestinians are taking internally. It's no secret that Abbas is seen as authoritarian and corrupt. Um, I shouldn't say he's seen as authoritarian and corrupt. He is authoritarian and corrupt. And you have this strange dichotomy now where both Israel and the U.S. are seemingly searching for solutions to alleviate problems in Gaza and cooperating with Hamas and allowing the Qataris to send $15 million in a month to pay salaries in Gaza while at the same time talking about the PA as uh, diplomatic terrorists and seeking to seeking to wipe Israel out and is intransigent. And so, you know, Hamas's uh, approach, which is pretty much confrontation with Israel, if you're an ordinary Palestinian, that seems to be a tactically smarter approach because it's actually extracting concessions, whereas the PA that... Uh, engages in security coordination with Israel and that engages in negotiations with Israel and that has formally recognized Israel's right to exist within the 1967 borders, that seems to get the Palestinians nowhere. So I don't think it's surprising that Palestinians are moving in a more radical direction. And if you look at the latest Palestinian polling on two states and on support for armed struggle against Israel, and most critically, um, on the question of what is the most effective way of getting a Palestinian state, armed struggle or diplomatic negotiations, Palestinians are pretty quickly moving in a direction where um, a majority of them no longer support two states. Uh, a plurality still does, but 
not a majority, but a majority of Palestinians now seem to believe that the most effective way of dealing with Israel is through armed conflict. And that is not a good trend. And I don't see anything on the horizon suggesting that it's going to be reversed. And, and we're also seeing uh, Palestinian leaders, potential uh, successors to Abbas, talking about one-state solution. Muhammad uh, Dahlan, who used to be uh, the Fatah head in Gaza and used to be very close with Abbas uh, until things went sour, he said on an interview last week that if Israel isn't interested in two states, he will welcome a one-state solution. But a one-state solution obviously means for him equal rights with rights to vote, making uh, uh, Arabs the, the majority uh, from uh, the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. Do you think that this kind of uh, rhetoric from Palestinian leaders is just posturing within the Palestinian public because a two-state solution seems uh, so far off? Or um, do they actually uh, believe in this as a viable option? It's tough to say, but irrespective of which of those is the right answer, it almost doesn't matter because in some ways it's very reflective of what you hear from Palestinians, particularly Palestinians under the age of 40, where one state is now uh, overwhelmingly more popular than the idea of two states. And this notion of Palestinian nationalism is really getting discarded. But even if it's not a deeply felt principle on the part of Dachan or other Palestinian leaders, the more, the more they say it and the more they embrace it, it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy on the Palestinian side. And um, there's no question to me that Dachan is trying to position himself for the post-Abbas period, and he's reading the tea leaves. And what he sees is that there doesn't, doesn't seem to be any progress on two states. There's really no measurable uh, advantage anymore um, to supporting a two-state agenda in uh, on the Palestinian street. And, you know, if you're trying to, trying to position yourself as the person with street cred and the person who has legitimacy to take over from Abbas, and you see that the situation on the ground is, is as it is, then, you know, supporting, supporting two states becomes a lot more difficult. And, uh, you know, it's easy, it's, it's a little easier for Dathlon to do it because he's living in the UAE. He is not a current Palestinian authority figure. So he has a little more leeway to do something like that than, you know, someone who, uh, someone who is still currently at the top of the PA or, you know, on the Fatah Central Committee. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, I, I have never assumed, and, and I assume even less now, that whoever follows Abbas is going to uh, be a stalwart supporter of two states out of the gate. I, I think that's unlikely, no matter who it is. So on that note, let's jump into a prediction question. Will we see a successor slash successors to Abbas in 2019? Now, this is Abbas that smokes 40 uh, cigarettes a day on average. <laughs> what do you think? Not only 40 cigarettes a day on average, this is a guy who, when he's in meetings with uh, foreign officials, has aides come in and pretend that he has uh, an urgent phone call he has to take in the next room so that he can go take a smoke break. Um, if you'd asked me this question a year ago, I would have said, for for those very reasons, yes, we'll probably see an Abbas successor in 2018. But, uh, you know, as of now, on December 20th, 
he's still still hanging on. So uh, without without access to uh, Abu Mazen's medical medical records, not just medical records. <laughs> I mean, there could be a scenario where maybe it has to do with a health his health deteriorating that uh, he, he passes off uh, leadership to uh, the next uh, generation. Maybe a group of uh, of senior PA officials, including Majid Faraz. Oh, I don't, I don't think I don't think he's voluntarily passing off leadership to anybody. The 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 trajectory of Abbas's career has been to consolidate power and to sideline anybody who can be remotely seen as a rival to him or as a threat to him. I don't think I don't think there's I don't think there's any way he's leaving the Mukata unless it's in a coffin. To to be crude about. Okay, so, so will we take that as is that a no that we will not see a successor to Abbas in 2019? <laughs> I need to like get a prediction. Said, We're not asking Abbas's medical records. I, I can't say, but I, I am comfortable saying that the only way we'll see a successor is through Abbas dying. He's not stepping down. Okay. And so I'm also going to say, no, we will not. I'm not going to talk about him dying or anything like that. I'm not going to go there. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm impressed. I'm impressed by your, your deep abiding respect for Abu Mazen, Eli. <laughs> uh, let's just move on. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> You also wrote about the West Bank. Obviously, uh, there have been a few deadly terrorist attacks um, in the past uh, the past couple of weeks, and uh, uh, you also wrote about uh, the increasing number of both uh, Hamas uh, cells that have uh, th- that Israel has uncovered, uh, largely also due to the security cooperation with the Palestinian Authority. Um, the Israel Shin Bet director uh, also mentioned uh, the amount of uh, 530 terrorist attacks uh, were, were were attempted, um, and it, but it's only in the past uh, month that we've really seen a rise of attacks that have been uh, successful. Can we expect more of this uh, in the next year? I think unquestionably, the IDF and Shinbed have reportedly been warning the prime minister and the security cabinet for months now that the West Bank is on the verge of explosion. Um, as you as as you note, and as I wrote in my piece this week, uh, the IDF and and Shinbed report uh, many more attacks thwarted and many more Hamas cells broken up this year than last year. Obviously, in the past few weeks, we've seen successful attacks that have been rightly alarming to Israelis. And on top of that, there is the outside factor of the U.S. and the Palestinian Authority security forces, because the thing that has kept the West Bank the most quiet and the thing that has kept terrorist attacks uh, outside of Israeli cities has been security coordination between PA security forces and Israel. But due to a law that was passed in October uh, in in the U.S. called the Anti-Terrorism Act Clarification Act of 2018, if the Palestinian Authority accepts any security funding from the U.S., and that's the only funding left, right? The the Trump administration has cut uh, all of the economic aid uh, and humanitarian aid that it has been spending in the West Bank and Gaza. If the PA accepts the security aid, which was $35 million last year, then it opens itself up under this new law to personal jurisdiction in U.S. courts for terrorism lawsuits, which uh, will almost certainly subject the PA to uh, bankruptcy level judgments in U.S. federal courts. And, uh, you know, every everything I've heard and every signal I've seen is that the PA, they, under, they understand this, you know, once this law was passed, 
I think there's a very good chance that they do not accept security funding from the U.S. next year, which you know means that the PA is not going to be equipped by the U.S., not going to be trained by the U.S. Uh, it means that the PA is going to be a far less effective security force than it has been. And that's going to translate into more violence and more terrorism against Israelis. And I'd also note that even if the PA does accept the security funding and there is some workaround to this law, the relatively new U.S. security coordinator in Jerusalem has been a lot less active than the last one. And, you know, on just like with the issue of two states on the Palestinian side, when you look at every single thing in the West Bank, every single trend, everything that has kept things quiet, they are all pointing in the wrong direction. And I think that um, I, I hope this prediction turns out to be terribly, terribly wrong. But I think that the West Bank is likely going to be more violent this year than it has been in a decade. What do you think Israel can do to prevent uh, this uh, deterioration in the West Bank? You mentioned the, the part that the Trump administration has played in uh, the deterioration. But um, Israel can do a lot more as well, I assume. I think it has to do whatever it can to maintain security coordination with the Palestinians. That's that's first and foremost. And I'm sure that Israel is trying that already and, and is going to keep on doing it. But uh, it's probably going to involve some sort of concessions to the PA, not in terms of negotiations, but in terms of making the West Bank quieter and improving the quality of life there. And that can that can mean lots of things. It can mean active measures such as seizing home demolitions in Area C uh, or um, cutting back on nighttime raids in Area A. But it can also mean um, not not taking positive actions, but but holding off on doing other things such as legalizing settlement outposts. Um, You know, all this kind of stuff makes the Palestinians understandably angry and makes them feel like they have no political horizon and just increases the tension. And when you already have rising unemployment in the West Bank, and when you already have an economy that's going to take a hit because of the cessation of U.S. aid, and when you already have the Palestinians feeling like they are trapped in a corrupt authoritarian PA regime, and they're getting hit at, you know, from all sides by uh, the U.S. and by other Arab states whom they perceive as selling them out, and uh, they see nothing from the Israelis. It's just it's a it's a toxic brew, and there are things that Israel can do to alleviate the situation in the West Bank. Now, is that a guarantee that everything's going to be quiet? No. Is it is any of that going to have any effect on Hamas cells? No. Hamas is going to is going to try to stir up as much trouble in the West Bank as it can, and it's going to do you know, all it can to try to get a foothold there. That's, that's inevitable, and that's, frankly, that's divorced from anything that Israel, uh, that Israel is doing. But you, know, the, you have to do what you can to work on all the other trends, and many of those other things are in Israel's control, including support for the PA. Now, all this will, uh, will unfold uh, in a year where elections are a sure thing in Israel. We're not sure exactly when. Um, they were supposed to be uh, in March until Bibi was able to salvage his coalition, really, uh, uh, by a thread. Um, but people are saying they may be in May. The scheduled date is uh, November, uh, you know the exact date? It's November 29th. 19, but 
it's it's November, but I don't know what the exact date okay. is. Okay, so but that leads us into another uh, prediction question. So, Michael, will Bibi beat Ben Gurion's record as Israel's longest serving prime minister? Now, the date is July sixteenth, twenty nineteen. I think elections will be before July sixteenth, but it's pretty likely that he'll win. So, what's your prediction here? Yes, I think he will beat Ben Gurion's record. I agree with you. I think elections are likely to happen before that because I don't think that the coalition is going to be able to keep on holding holding things together uh, with only a, a one seat margin. Um, and yeah, I think he's going to win. And you know, the obviously the the pending indictments play into this. You know, yesterday the state attorney announced that uh, the review into the police recommendations is over and it's been, you know, even though the state attorney didn't say it straight out, it's been widely reported that the state attorney's office is recommending indictments for uh, for bribery in uh, bribery and in, in, certainly in case 4000 and possibly in cases 1000 and 2000 as well. So, you know, it, it's up to it's up to Attorney General Mendel Blit and you know, I I've been operating on the assumption that he does not want to indict Netanyahu that he is dragging this out so that there can be elections first and Bibi will win. And then Bibi will make the argument that the people have spoken, that uh, everybody, it's, it's, it's obviously public knowledge that uh, it's been recommended recommended to indict him and that people elected him anyway and decided they want to be his prime minister. And so it would be anti-democratic to remove him. Now, I actually, I, I don't buy that argument from a substantive perspective, but I think that it's probably likely to win out from a process perspective. And I think that that's what the attorney general is counting on. But even if I am wrong and the attorney general indicts him before elections, I don't know that it's going to matter. Again, this stuff has been out there now for nearly two years. It's kind of it's baked into the system, right? The the, the price, the, the price is already built in. And so um, I think he's probably going to win an election and uh, he'll be able to form a coalition. And uh, you know, if if it ends up that he wins an election and then is indicted afterward, perhaps uh, perhaps his coalition members will force him to step down, and then we'll see a new prime minister. But it's difficult for me to see a scenario in which anybody else comes out on top from an election than Netanyahu. And so, what will you be doing, Michael, to celebrate uh, his breaking the record on July sixteenth? <laughs> it's only twelve days after the fourth of July. Well, it will be I a guess, celebratory I, I, mood. It will be the summer. Yeah. I'll probably, I'll probably open open a bottle of champagne and and I will drink it from my uh, my hipster Ben Gurion coffee mug, uh, you know, as a way to as a way to really um, send Ben Gurion's record off uh, with a with a proper send off. Beautiful stuff. Um, so yeah. the prediction is that Netanyahu will be prime minister uh, by the end of 2019. Well, again, he may. My prediction is that he will win an election in 2019. Whether he's prime minister at the end of 2019, I think, depends on indictments and what his coalition does with that. So that takes me to my last Netanyahu predictions question is, will Netanyahu hold more ministerial portfolios by the end of 2019 (laughs) as he does the end of 2018? I think on that one, I'll have to say no. Uh, But listen, there, there are some really juicy, there's some really juicy portfolios out there. I mean... Who How many does he hold eight? right now? He holds is it he holds four? So right now he is prime minister, defense minister, foreign affairs minister, health minister, and um, immigration and absorption minister. Right, he has been barred from acting as communications minister. Um, 
you know, he's effectively the diaspora affairs minister, even though it's officially not Tali Bennett's. But really, who who wouldn't want to be the 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 culture and, and sport minister? I mean, what a what a great gig that is. Miri Regev gets to go around the world to film festivals and you know wear dresses that have uh, that have pictures of Jerusalem on them and get into fights with with movie movie directors and actors and actresses. That sounds kind of fun. So you know, if I were if I were the prime minister, why not? Um, so here, let's just let, let's finish off the uh, the Israeli political predictions. Will Oren Chazan plays high enough in the Likud primary to retain his Knesset seat. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I want to say, God, I hope not, because he's possibly the most embarrassing politician in the world. On the other hand, I want to say, God, I hope so, because he's possibly the most entertaining politician in the world. Uh, not to mention that podcast podcast listeners don't know this, Eli, but you had an encounter with Oren Chazan in an airport recently where you took a selfie with him. And, he, he took a selfie with know, me. He that, did the selfie taking. Okay. Let's... Please let's. He let's, took the selfie. He took the selfie. I, 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 I mean, he he has uh, he has superb selfie taking technique. Uh, I'm sure he does. It, Lots of practice, and and you know, frankly, it'll be it'll be a huge blow to your prestige if Oren Chazan is no longer a member of Knesset. So I suppose my answer is that for your sake, I hope that Oren Chazan <laughs> remains a member. Thank you. Th- You're welcome. Thank you. But um, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of uh, Likud MKs who will be uh, have a tough time maintaining their seat in the Likud primary because of the structure in the Likud primary has changed, and also uh, Oren Chazan got uh, elected as the representative of of the young Likud, and in this primary uh, he will need to be elected in the uh, in the the national Likud list. I believe he got uh, just under six thousand votes uh, to get his uh, Knesset seat. There are other MKs like. Uh, Mickey Zohar, who got around 1,900 votes, uh, they'll also have to be in the national vote. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out. Uh, political question, will Benny Gantz join politics? I think he will. I, I'm not confident that he's going to be as successful as some of the polls bear out and, and as some folks uh, have pinned very high hopes on him. But I think he's going to join. I, th- I think that... Uh, He's been dancing around the issue, obviously, but from everything I've seen and heard in terms of him going around and, and meeting with all sorts of folks and uh, both currently serving politicians and uh, generals who would possibly form a new party with him, uh, I don't think that he would be going to all of these lengths to stoke uh, expectations if he weren't ultimately going to do it. I agree. Um Will Avi Gabay end 2019 as head of the Labour Party? That's a good one. Uh, I think the answer to that is no, because elections are going to happen in 2019 no matter what. I think that Zionist Union is likely to be decimated, and I think that almost everybody is going to lay the blame at Avi Gabay's feet. I think that up until now, he has beaten back brewing revolts by saying, you know, he was only recently elected as head of the party and he's you know, not giving it up. But if uh, if he does incredibly poorly in a national election, and I expect that that is going to be the case, then the rationale for keeping him is going to be none and he's not going to be able to hold on. And unlike Likud, you know, where uh, you've only had, I think, four Likud party heads in history, right? Four, uh, Begin, Shamir, Sharon and Bibi. Uh, Labor just you know, notoriously um, notoriously eats its leaders. 
So I think that Avi Gabay's political career, uh, at least as as head of labor and uh, head of Zionist Union, is is coming to a coming to an end. And last question, uh, kind of connected to the uh, to the previous one: Who will get more seats in the next election, the Arab List or the Labor Party? I think uh, Joint List is probably going to beat Labor, especially especially if Benny Gantz jumps into politics and does not join the Labor Party. Correct, and does not join the Labor Party. And I and and, and I, I'd be surprised if he joins the Labor Party. And there was talk of uh, this week. Uh, there was a picture taken of uh, him meeting uh, Yair Lapid, and then a poll was done by uh, Chadashot, the main Israeli uh, a news uh, news channel, where. Uh, Lapid Gantz together uh, got uh, 26 uh, seats, uh, and Netanyahu had uh, 29. Um, so that obviously increased the speculation of uh, of them joining forces. So Michael, moving on. This was a topic that I was sure we would touch on in 2018, and we could talk about it in detail because it would be revealed before our eyes. I remember when when uh, President Trump was elected, or before he was elected, he said within six months of being president, he would know whether a peace deal was possible between Israelis and the Palestinians. He had a master plan. It was the ultimate deal. He hasn't released it yet. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Michael, will he release his plan in 2019? And if the plan is released, which quarter will it happen in? Now, Eli, I know this has been disappointing to you because uh, unlike some people who took Trump seriously, but not literally, you took him literally from the beginning and were certain that within those first six months we were going to see a peace initiative. So I know that you have been literally just waiting with bated breath now uh, for, for nearly nearly two years. I, I think happen. Jason Greenblatt with his Twitter activity had you fooled as well, that this, there, was something, there was something serious going on for at least two weeks. Uh, I don't recall, but uh, I, I think that I, I've generally been bearish on this, and I, I remain bearish on this. I think that there is uh, no better than a 50-50 chance that we see a peace plan at all. I don't think that Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to run with any peace plan out there because no matter what, it's bad for him, even if it's tilted incredibly far over toward the Israeli side, and I expect that any Trump peace plan will be. He's still Netanyahu is still going to get uh, knocked from the right that doesn't want to make any concessions at all and doesn't want to accept any peace plan at all. And so for any peace plan at all to be out there, unless Netanyahu says no to it right away, and, and I, I think he's sufficiently uh, afraid of Trump to do that, it's going to cost him votes on the right because Bennett and Shaked will, will jump on him and will cannibalize votes from Likud. So I don't think he wants it out there. And I think that there are members of the Trump team that are sufficiently attentive to Netanyahu's political concerns that there's a good likelihood it will not be released during any type of Israeli campaign season. And then when you get to the next campaign season, which is here in the U.S., Trump's evangelical base is not going to be thrilled with a peace plan either. They also don't want to see Israel have to change the status quo or make any type of real concession on anything. And I'm not sure that Trump himself is going to want to run on a peace plan with his evangelical base. And but he loves making deals, Michael. You're, you're free. Yeah, well, I think it should be it should be pretty clear to everyone, even to our uh, even to our famously cloistered and stubborn president, 
that um, this peace deal is is just not going to go anywhere. It's not it's not going to be you know accepted and implemented by by both sides at the drop of a hat. The Palestinians may not even agree to engage on it at all. And then, you know, and if that happens, then Trump is left to run on uh, a released peace plan that uh, has upset his evangelical base and that isn't that isn't a victory of any sorts because it hasn't gone anywhere. So it's not a good campaign issue for him. It's a campaign issue that Netanyahu certainly wants to avoid. So I'm you're saying no. Are no you better, saying no? I'm, I'm, I'm no better than 50-50 on it being released at all. And this if is it's a prediction, released, you have to make a prediction, Michael. This is a predictions episode. I'm gonna make, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it gets released, it's only going to, going to be a very small window in which it can be. And it's going to be dead on arrival. Um, so I think that, you know, with all that, if, if you're forcing me to make a prediction, Eli, uh, and risk, risk ending up with egg all over my face at the end of 2019, I am going to predict that the peace plan will not be released. Wow. And, and if it, let's say it is released, is Jerusalem, is Jerusalem a part of the plan? Good question. I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. The, if, there's, if there's one thing that the Trump, the Trump folks have been good at, it is keeping this peace team so small. You know, it's really it's really been three people. It's been Kushner, Greenblatt, and Friedman. You know, Nikki Haley yesterday said that she has had she, she's seen the plan and read it. Um, but almost nobody has has seen this thing. Nothing nothing confirmable has has been leaked. I have no no inside you know information or any tips as to as to what's in it. So I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I I don't think that the I don't think the Trump folks, given the Jerusalem decision of last December, I, I don't think that they are inclined to do anything for the Palestinians on Jerusalem. So I would be surprised if any plan they released. And again, I don't think they're going to release one, but I'd be surprised if any plan they released endorses Jerusalem as a shared capital. Uh, it is likely to say something about access to holy sites and some sort of some sort of you know limited sovereignty uh, in Muslim holy sites in the Temple Mount for the Palestinians or you know keep the arrangement now where the Jordanians have a special role. But I would be very surprised if the Trump peace plan explicitly endorses Jerusalem as the capital of two states. Okay, and I have two more predictions, and then we'll get into sports predictions, which is off topic. So, will Israel normalize ties with any of the Gulf Arab states in 2019? If by normalize ties you mean establish actual diplomatic relations, no. I think that you may see limited things like El Al overflight rights in places. I think that. Uh, you're likely to see another Prime Minister Netanyahu visit to uh, a Gulf country like Bahrain. You may even see some some Gulf official publicly come to the U.S. You know, a, a defense minister or something like that. But uh, absent absent uh, an agreement with the Palestinians, I do not think that uh, there will be normalized relations, full diplomatic relations between Israel and any of the Gulf states. Okay, sounds good. I agree with you. Um, the n- next question is connected to Australia, which actually announced that it w- it recognized uh, West Jerusalem as uh, 
Israel's uh, capital. And uh, did they announce an embassy move as well? They announced that they are not going to move the embassy to Jerusalem until there is a peace deal with the Palestinians. So what they did essentially, what I guess Australia thought would be welcomed by Israel. um, And uh, I think they kind of uh, offended both parties by saying that to Israel that only West Jerusalem belonged to to Israel and to the Palestinians by doing a a move without any... uh, uh, without any uh, political peace process. Uh, uh, so uh, it was kind of a lose-lose for Australia, but uh, how many countries do you think in 2019 will move their embassy to Jerusalem? Well, before that, it's a lose-lose for Australia from a political perspective, you know, in that, yes, they, the Israelis were, were angry that they didn't, that they didn't endorse uh, Israeli control over undivided Jerusalem, and the Palestinians... Uh, it's not just that the Palestinians were angry that Australia did it outside of any type of peace process or negotiations. You know, the most egregious response here came from Saya Barakat, who uh, who effectively said that uh, West Jerusalem shouldn't be considered uh, shouldn't be considered uh, Israeli uh, under Israel sovereign control either, which is nonsense. Um, but from from a from a policy perspective, Australia did what what I would have liked to have seen the United States do which is to unambiguously send a message that West Jerusalem is, of course, the capital of Israel, that uh, there's no reason for embassies uh, not to be in West Jerusalem. There's no reason for countries not to recognize West Jerusalem as, as the unambiguous capital. Um, but to make it clear to the Israeli government that this idea of the uh, undivided, undivided city of Jerusalem is, is a fantasy. Um, and it's also a legal fiction. It's not. It's not. It's not accurate. It's not accurate on the ground today. Um, I would have liked to have seen the U.S. do that. So I'm happy that Australia did it in what I think is is a more sensible way. To get to the predictions, how many countries will move their embassies to Jerusalem? Brazil has said they're going to do it. Uh, I think that uh, it's possible Israel will pick up another, you know, one or two Latin American countries. But I think that's going to be it. So I think the over-under here is three. I'm going to go under. Are you going to go under? I'm going to go under, too. Yeah, I'm going to go under. Okay, great. And it will be interesting to see if there's all of a sudden a a mass movement of embassies specifically to West Jerusalem. It would be interesting to see how how both Israel and the Palestinians uh, uh, react, uh, because I think that's a a positive positive step, uh, both in terms of recognizing Israel's capital and... Uh, making it clear that uh, especially the 26 villages that uh, Arab villages that Israel annexed uh, in 1967 that they are not part and they they, sh- they shouldn't be part of a a future uh, Jewish capital of of Jerusalem. Right, particularly since even Israelis nobody considered that Jerusalem before 1967. Um, what's interesting on on the embassy front, you know, is two things: Australia and Russia have now both explicitly recognized West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but have both also declined to move their embassies, which is an interesting move. And second, uh, Yoav Gallant, currently Israel's housing minister, has been uh, laying the groundwork for you know, what he's calling an embassy row um, in, uh, in East Talpiot, which is in the, uh, if you look at the green line, it's in the, it's in the no man's land part. Um, right, the the green line surrounded surrounded a no man's land section, and that's where he is pushing for this embassy row. And uh, the other day, he tried to put pressure on countries by 
essentially saying, um, you know, get get in now while while while, while the getting is good because these <laughs> these plots are going to move fast. Um, I'm I'm not sure that I'm not sure that they are, and um, part of me wonders if you know they were to locate the embassy row in a neighborhood that that is not in no man's land that is you know well on the Israeli side of the green line if that would change. But given the Australia Australian and Russian and Russian signals on this, I'm actually not sure it would matter. I think that countries are going to be more comfortable recognizing West Jerusalem as the rightful capital of of Israel, but I think are probably going to follow the Australian and Russian move of keeping embassies where they are until there is a peace agreement and until the final status of Jerusalem is, is resolved. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see how uh, in Israeli elections, I mean, how first, how much the, the Palestinian issue, uh, how much play it gets in uh, the election uh, campaign. And also, if Jerusalem is mentioned, uh, I mean, Yair Lapid uh, just posted uh, his his promises for what he'll do if he wins uh the, the election this year, and he had separation from the Palestinians, but a united Jerusalem, and uh, and we don't know exactly what, what, what he means uh, by that. But I think this has been a, it's been a fun episode, a lot of predictions. At the end of 2019, we will come back with our results. I'm going to say that uh, Michael will, will be about 30 to 40% uh, right. Um, so let's move into that's that's optimistic. Why? Thirty to forty percent. That's uh, if you'll take it. Yeah, that's uh, that's that, that's that's a, that's a surprising a surprising uh, lot of credit from you, Eli. It's it's my pleasure. Um, but Michael, uh, your Super Bowl favorite. I I gave up the NFL two years ago, so I couldn't even tell you right now. The Just say record, a team. Just the record, say a team. The record of, of of even one team. So you're not even going to predict. I, I didn't even watch the Super Bowl two years ago. Um, last year, I was at a Super Bowl party that, where it was on in the background, so I, so I glimpsed some of it. But uh, last year, that was the only football that I watched the entire season. This season, uh, I, I, I passively, passively observed some Thanksgiving football that was on in the background, but otherwise haven't watched a minute of NFL. Okay. I'm going to say the Los Angeles Rams for, for anyone who cares. Um, uh, will the Red Sox repeat this year? I don't want to jinx anything so so I, i'm gonna punt on it, that it seems that but, michael is only uh, fun when but, uh, it comes but, to but, israeli but, but political note, predictions but i will i will i will note that the 2018 boston red sox won more games than any team in history outside of the 1998 yankees uh and unlike the 1998 yankees the 2018 red sox are not rooted for by satan so I'd say that they have a pretty good chance of repeating in, in 2019. You know, the, the American League is, is really good. I, I'm always scared of Houston. Um, as much as I hate to say it, the Yankees, the Yankees still remain a, a formidable opponent. Um, but, uh, but the Red Sox, the Red Sox, the Red Sox are pretty damn awesome. And Mookie Betts is easily the, my, 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 favorite, my favorite all-time position player already. Um, so go Sox. And how about a good word for my Blue Jays? Oh, Eli, that's so that's that, that's that, that's so sweet that, that you Listen, asked me three years ago you were Blue talking Jays. a very different um, the good, uh, tune when it, when it came to the Blue Jays. So let's. Uh, yeah, well, the 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 good word for your Blue Jays is that uh, maybe if they're really lucky, they have an outside shot at uh, at finishing uh, finishing over five hundred. 
Okay, well, with that, we will conclude this week's episode. Thank you to all our listeners, and thank you to uh, Michael Koplow for some interesting uh, predictions. We'll see how it turns out, uh, and we'll see everybody in the new year. Thanks for listening. Yes, I